Hi, this is Anne Philippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. This episode is sponsored by Plant Medicine Law Group, the American boutique law firm serving the psychedelic and cannabis space. PMLG was founded by three women in November 2020. Their mission is to expand equitable and legal access to plant medicine and help companies in the psychedelic and cannabis industries succeed in a complex emerging market. PMLG provides clients with strategic expertise to successfully launch, fund and grow their businesses. They are committed to humanizing the legal process and empowering you with the information and guidance you need to build the next generation of successful businesses. The PMLG team embraces complexity, encourages innovation and aligns themselves directly with your vision. I got to know Adriana Kurtzer, one of the PMLG founding partners, during a digital conference. She then invited me to join the Interfaith Working Group Faith and Psychedelics. I'm a huge fan of Adriana's and her team. And if you need more information, please head over to www.plantmedicinelaw.com. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. My guests today are Daniel Goldberg and Tim Schlitt, founders of the Palo Santo Fund. The two of them and their impressive team got a big plan for the coming years. Investing across the new psychedelic ecosystem and funding a new paradigm in well-being. Palo Santo's diversified investment fund is helping to increase the supply of clinically effective and accessible mental health and addiction treatment solutions needed in today's world. Daniel Goldberg began seeing mental health as a part of a spectrum and not something that needs to be so pathologized. As a founder of Palo Santo and Bridge Investments, Daniel has been actively investing with and supporting inspired entrepreneurs for 20 years. Years ago, he saw the transformational potential of psychedelic medicines and has developed a deep network of relationships across the psychedelic research and business communities. His passion for the space is purpose-driven and science-informed. He's thrilled to be a part of Palo Santo's mission of supporting promising treatments while ensuring widespread access to safe, legal and effective solutions. Tim Schlitt brings extensive knowledge investing across life sciences and healthcare services and has held a lifelong passion for understanding and improving treatments for CNS disorders. He believes psychedelics are poised to shift the paradigm in mental health treatments and his primary mission in co-founding Palo Santo is to invest in companies and solutions that allow for broad access to those most in need of mental health care. Prior to co-founding Palo Santo, Tim covered the life sciences and healthcare services sectors as a private equity investor at Madison Dearborn Partners and an investment banker at J.P. Morgan and Greenhill. We talk about Daniel's and Tim's personal psychedelic experience they had before founding Palo Santo, the shift and the incredible change they saw coming when a new generation of scientists engaged in psychedelics. We talk about the psychedelic pharma model and what compound is Daniel's and Tim's favorite 
and we chat about what will possibly happen and what I will see if I would dare to take 5-MeO-DMT. But that will happen in another episode and one of the next episodes we will probably have with Palo Santo. So now please enjoy the show and Tim and Daniel. Thank you so much. Super excited to have the Palo Santo Fund. I mean, how that already sounds like really like super important. <laughs> the Palo Santo Fund. I mean, to me, it sounds, um, it sounds very impressive. So oh, glad great, to have you, yeah, <laughs> great to have you guys on the show. So maybe we jump right in before we talk about how you end up in this super exciting space. What to you at the moment is the biggest challenge in the psychedelic VC world, because we see so many, so much money coming in, such incredible press releases. Like every day, I feel like there's another billionaire coming away. <laughs> it's a great question. It's not a question we've gotten. And, and by the way, I'm speaking to you and the audience. I love, the, I love doing this interview already because we don't have the questions right in front of us. We haven't prepped with the questions. And I, I give you a lot of credit, Anne, for going that route because it's a lot of fun to make sure that this is really, uh, I don't know, as, as authentic as possible. I think part of the issue you touched on is, is there's a lot of money coming in the space. And we're definitely, we come from, uh, you know, we'll go into our backgrounds, but not only kind of healthcare services and, and venture capital and investing and, and of course, the psychedelic um, field. But uh, we do come from an investment, you know, background and, and helping um, create returns for investors. It's been challenging recently with the flood of money coming in to keep that noise, keep, keep the volume down a little bit mm -hmm. on that noise, right? Because um, that's really what it is. It's just noise. You're always going to hear from people, is it too early? Is it too late? Is there a bubble? Uh, our you know, overall thesis here is that these medicines and therapies are absolutely going to change psychiatry and mental health forever. Yeah. And we're in it for the long haul and we're working with drug development firms and, and digital therapeutic companies and all different types of, you know, businesses in the psychedelic ecosystem that are focused on that long-term goal. But there is a lot of noise. I mean, it, and it can be distracting. Um, I think keeping the volume down a little bit on that noise while we stay focused on executing our thesis has been really helpful because it's very easy to get caught up in the hype, um, which is kind of not how Tim and I are, are wired. That's, that's what I would say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with Daniel on that of, we try to be psychedelic realists, you know, in oh, DC wow. you have to be an optimist, but you would try to be realistic about what these can accomplish and also what these can accomplish. And we know there's certain patients by default, you know, we, these can't access, for example, if you have bipolar risk of schizophrenia. So um, and they're not going to solve all the world's problems. They're not going to be a panacea. So even though sometimes they're they're pitched that way. So as investors, we do have to be skeptics. That's how we're wired. Um, I'd say the biggest challenge I've seen, but I think it's surmountable still, if you're bringing in the right capital base, is now that you've had a tie, Compass, GH Research, Field Trips, a, a few heavyweights in the field mm -hmm. that have been minted, Every new company coming to market now is saying we're the next to tie and we should be oh, valued really? as such. Oh, wow. Or yeah, or look, we're going to value our company at half a billion dollars or worth a 500 million. Look, we're so much cheaper than a tie. We're at a 80% discount or something. And I think what founders should keep in mind is that there's milestones you hit. Your, your valuation goes up progressively and people forget that a tie at one point in their series A, they were sub 100 million was their valuation for their series A round. Same with Compass Pathways. And I think people, sometimes entrepreneurs lose sight of that. So there's a lot of communication that we engage in and 
a little bit of education there of, hey, here's the comp set. Here's how they track over. And when I say comp set, it's comparable companies. You know, like when you're buying a home, you look at what other homes valued at. Um, but it's like, okay, you've got a home in one neighborhood, a home in a different neighborhood. You've got to value them accordingly. And the same goes for companies. So um, there's been a little bit of an education curve, I think, of getting founders and entrepreneurs up to speed on that. But um, when you're coming in with the right investor base and a savvy investor base, I think people really appreciate that. And it certainly gives folks leverage in processes. So the, the space has gotten much more sophisticated alongside this. And I think that's helped a lot, but um, mm-hmm. it's definitely taken more of our time than we would have expected. Okay. And how do you keep yourself kind of contained to not get overexcited? I mean, I think it's really hard to be honest. Like if you would just look at all the press releases that we said earlier, all the next celebrity that talks about Ayahuasca, <laughs> like Will Smith last week, the whole GQ cover story was about him finding his new um, post 50 person. Yeah. So yeah. um, how do you guys handle this? Because it is almost like an addiction, like to, wow, look, there's mm-hmm. now also research for anorexia and wow, that's for ADHD. So like you could spend like 24 hours to just kind of mm-hmm. rave about new ideas in the space. Mm-hmm. Well, we do that a little bit internally, right? We get excited. We have those conversations. There's a lot of excitement. Um, there are certainly news reports that come out that are very substantive on, on you know, clinical trials or new information that is, is incredibly exciting, right? You know, that, that we have internal conversations about. We've seen hype cycles before and we've been investing, you know, capital for investors for a long, long time. Uh, there is a little bit of, uh, I hate to say that, you know, I do have some gray hair now. I'm going to be 50 <laughs> next year. It's not exactly, you know, I've seen enough businesses fail, for reasons that are that are outside, right, of the excitement around the thesis, right? So there are just a lot of reasons when you dig down, even though you might have all this excitement around the space, why particular businesses, uh, whether they're biotech or services, um, are going to succeed or fail and taking a highly analytical approach. And I think that can be very hard in psychedelics with all the excitement. But focusing on diligence, focusing on the science, focusing on valuations, focusing on the team. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it an execution-oriented team as opposed to a, uh, a, promotion, no, a promotional-oriented team, right? Because there, there's a difference there. Mm-hmm. Um, staying grounded there is really key uh, because you, if you get too into the hype and the excitement around psychedelics, you will lose track. You will make mistakes investing. Um, said another way, we've had amazing exits in our business in years past. And, and, and like any other business, we've also seen its venture. We've seen, we've seen the zeros. So when you, when you start to look at why those zeros happened and why the 10 X's happened and the 20 X's happened, and you remember that it, it's grounding. Um, there's a history there and you relive the PTSD over the, the failures and you go over the excitement over why you made money. And, and you bring that into what we're doing here in psychedelics, as opposed to just, I think a lot of people have jumped into psychedelics because of the excitement. Um, and I think that's where, where things go bad. I think coming from an investing, an investing background and, and, you know, private equity for, for Tim and healthcare services, I think has, has kept us grounded um, in this space. Yeah, we've been in it for quite some time and we've seen a lot of deals at this point. So it starts to lose its sheen a bit. I think for some of the newer entrants, you're seeing people who just discovered ayahuasca for the first time. And, and Danny and I talk about this. Had we launched the fund four years ago after mm-hmm. our first psilocybin journey, the narrative would be very different. And I don't think it would have been constructive. We would have been so wide-eyed with their optimism um, that it would have almost been a little over-exuberant. So I think you're seeing that next stage of the adoption cycle and a lot of these newer entrants, but you see a lot of deals. You kind of see some of the common narratives and then you, you get a sense of what are the ones that 
um, are uncommon. And those are the ones that really pique our interest. And I, I'm also of the more controversial opinion that the psychedelics we have on hand today are not necessarily the end-all be-all. We do have a thesis around third-generation psychedelics and novel drug discovery. I think we have to realize that the context in which at least the natural psychedelics developed, and that was as for some sort of evolutionary purpose, whether it was um, beneficial or you know it was to keep up predators, but it wasn't designed with humans specifically in mind. We have a lot of off-target receptor effects. Um, we know there is some cardiac risk, things like that. So there's a lot of improvement that can be done also. So I think we've just been in the field known enough for pharmacologists for long enough to know that what we got is great, but it's not going to be the end all be all. And I think there's a wide open space for next generation psychedelics as well. And did you guys do the psilocybin trip before you founded Defund or while you mm -hmm. were founding Defund? No, no, no. Long, a while back. <laughs> okay. Like, like Tim said, I, I think, you know, it was about four years ago when we mm -hmm. got involved in this space, mm -hmm. you know, for our own uh, personal reasons, like all of us, I'm saying all of us collectively who are in psychedelics, yeah. I have yet to meet um, people that are deeply involved in this space that haven't, you know, had um, a range of experiences with yeah. the medicine. Um, no, it was a while back. And I, I do think that space from the time uh, in space that we have from that period, I think is really important. Um, you know, like they tell you, go in, if you're going to do a Fabiano DMT or whatever it is, and don't make a big decision the next day, right? Well, I, th I think we didn't make a big decision the next year or the year after that. We took our time trying to figure out how we could get involved. Originally, um, I, I think we were both focused on more of the philanthropic or nonprofit or, you know, how could this be a moonlight, right? We had our own careers. It's like, how could we get involved in a way to help move this project forward? I think personally, I realized that there was no way with the kind of passion and excitement and, and opportunity here um, that we could achieve what we were going to achieve by, quote, moonlighting, right? By having this be an extracurricular activity. I knew eventually if there was some way that we could make this our, our, our full-time, our livelihoods, that we would have a bigger impact. I didn't picture four years ago a venture fund. That was not even on the horizon at all. I, I kind of suspected that we might get involved with a company or two. But with the way... Um, you know, being that this is largely right now very much drug development, right, in terms of the dollars that are being deployed, uh, venture capital, uh, the fund format really, really makes sense. It allows us to be involved in a, a range of opportunities. We're very much, uh, I would say, diversified by both kind of indication, but also compound. And, and that, that would be hard to do if you were investing in one or two companies. Um, and it allows us to get involved with really a, a range of different types of people that are exploring different avenues. And that's very exciting. So, we obviously work with the medicine from time to time. I think since we got involved in the space, we don't have the same time to, to work on ourselves, but we'll get there. We'll probably burn out, uh, you know, <laughs> being in the business, but it's been a while since we started. And I think that space and that time was extremely helpful, at least for myself, to get some perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, maybe we can just jump in, like Tim, with you, like how you actually got into the space or what was your first kind of getting in touch with psychedelics and how do you ended up with the decision to really make this into your, your business, basically? Yeah, I, I think if you talk to anyone who knew me in high school and college, they would be shocked to see me <laughs> doing this now, which I, I don't know if that lends some validation to it, that, that even a skeptic like me could get over the hump with enough scientific data. But um, I, I guess let me start with my career because I think yeah. that segue, that's a good segue into mm -hmm. getting into this space and, and it intersects with my interest in psychology, psychiatry, um, and then psychedelics. 
But uh, my career has been in healthcare. So started off at JP Morgan and then Greenhill and Company, investment banks in New York, uh, working in their healthcare groups, mainly focused on life sciences. Um, and then from there, moved on to a private equity firm in Chicago called Madison Dearborn Partners. And during most of my time, there was focused primarily on healthcare services. So life sciences, I like to characterize as the product development. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're building the drugs, you're discovering the drugs, the products that are then going to get sold or the therapeutics that will get sold through services. So that's clinics, tech, all that, that end of the, the continuum. So certainly saw the full spectrum of the healthcare space throughout my career. And I think that was very fortuitous that we've seen psychedelics go much more of a biopharma, biomedical path than cannabis did. I, I think a lot of us are in agreement. The odds of this looking like a true recreational market with dispensaries, as was done in cannabis, is probably that's far-fetched. Maybe you get more of an Oregon-type model, but um, it's largely been healthcare has been the focus here. So the way you evaluate those businesses, the way you assess valuations and prospects is very different in the healthcare field, especially biotech relative to other spaces. So that was professional career. Personally, I have always had a fascination with psychology and psychiatry. Um, I've seen a lot of family members struggle with mental health issues. And I think we all can agree that the current standard of care sucks. I mean, it's a necessary evil. I still don't want to poo-poo SSRIs when that's really the only option available. But I think we all know it could be so much better. SSRIs, are, it, it's a sledgehammer where you need a scalpel. You know, And if, if you look at it pharmacologically. That's how it's working too. So knew there's got to be a better way to do this. And then about four years ago, just started seeing data coming out of Johns Hopkins, NYU, Imperial College London. Those studies came across my transom. Um, And coming from the healthcare space, the moment you have clinical data, that's where it gets really interesting. I mean, you can have rat models, you can have animal data. That's so-so. It doesn't always translate to humans. But the moment you have clinical data and in a large number of humans, you go, holy crap, there's something here. And the effect sizes were large. The statistical significance was very notable, far more than SSRIs, even where we know it's, it's marginal significance. And I was like, holy crap, there, there's something here to look at, at least. Like, let's not stop the conversation. You know, most people hear psychedelics, they stop the conversation. I'm like, yeah. this is not a conversation worth stopping. So as Daniel hit on, we started digging, um, really got very active networking in the space, had no idea where it would go. Um, but realized that there's something here. And then COVID was the real catalyst to launch this where we said, okay, you've got a huge mental health crisis. It was already simmering pre-COVID um, and this brought it to all of our doorsteps now. And that was the real catalyst to say, no, what? we've got a big network in the space. We're seeing a lot of deal flow. Daniel's got a VC background. I'm private equity, but still in the investing space. Um, and I come from a healthcare background. So I think it all made, it made sense to bring it together. We had all the right ingredients in place. Mm. Okay. So Daniel, maybe just your background a little bit, where you come from and how you made the decision. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life in in VC and uh, private equity, growth equity. That's sort of like the spectrum of investing from a time. So right, venture capital being early stage, growth equity, kind of mid-stage, private equity a little later, and and there's a spectrum there. Um, You know, four years ago, it was right around four years ago, I keep thinking... um, I thinking it's it's longer because Tim and I feel like we've we've been in this forever. Dog years. I was fortunate. It's dog. Yeah, it's it's psychedelic years. Uh, you know, I was I was fortunate enough having read Michael Pollan's book. No surprise. Um, you know, I think there's no shame in being the I don't know the the millionth person to have been inspired by Michael Pollan's book. I had heard you know a few rumblings here and there. I had been reading some you know some reports and hearing some things on the on NPR. Uh, I, I, it didn't really crystallize until I read Michael Pollan's book. 
you know, is obviously a, a you know an incredible storyteller, but there was something about how he described mental health being really truly being along a spectrum and the rumination, right? There's this idea that rumination is, is a bit of a common denominator, right? Or a, a common thread behind what we would describe as having a bad, you know, you know, mental health issues, right? Whether that's uh, depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, you know, it, it, there's a common denominator, at least to me, where I was, I kept hearing in, in seeing and, and almost smelling, uh, describing synesthesia here, rumination, right? That really stuck out. And the stories, uh, the stories he was telling were really resonating with me. And I, I became very fascinated. I had heard a bit and I just started digging and digging and doing research, um, talking to people. Um, there weren't a lot of people here in Chicago. Chicago is not San Francisco or Boulder or mm -hmm. Berlin. It's a little bit of a psychedelic uh, desert or it was. Now it's not. And I was very, very fortunate to be referred to a, a very um, well-respected and well-trained um, uh, underground guide um, who was incredibly safe. And, and you know, I, I felt comfortable with where I was at in life exploring that. Um, it took me a long time to get comfortable with that. Now it's, you know, much more destigmatized. I had one experience. Um, it was with uh, MDMA. It was, you know, MDMA-assisted therapy that was absolutely a game changer. I wouldn't say that all of my experiences after that were as easy and simple and, you know, kind of the processing and the floating. I mean, this was really the, it crystallized, right? It was a moment where I gained some relief and some clarity, um, some energy. It was amazing. And shortly after that, about a week or two after that, I happened to be in New York for a conference unrelated to psychedelics. And I saw that Horizons was happening. So, uh, you know, we can get to the, the magical aspects of psychedelics. I look back as, as a little bit of I was out there putting myself out there and I got, you know, maybe got lucky and trying. But at the time, it felt pretty magical because I had this experience. I went to Horizons. I met some amazing people. Uh, and, and I think what, what Tim and I really, at least, you know, I'm speaking for myself, saw at a conference like Horizons was it was a conference unlike any other conference I had ever been to in that everyone there everyone, the vast majority, were very collaborative, very mission-driven, very serious about the science, but also very interested in hearing about other people's stories and very open-minded. You go to a real estate conference in Vegas, or you go to, I don't know, a healthcare <laughs> conference or whatever, and there's a lot of promotion. And we're not above promotion in psychedelics, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's for-profit, you know, there's a lot of different for-profit, non-profit, there's egos and there's people trying to build their businesses. But what Tim and I noticed and what was fascinating to me is that there was this openness and kind of collaborative ethos. And we were also blown away by the science. I mean, I don't think, I mean, hearing firsthand results about clinical trials for the first time that were coming out, it was, it was fascinating. And we started to notice at that moment, we didn't realize at the time, I think it took a year, that scientists were coming in from the outside, right? This was the moment, I think, then when, after Michael Pollan's book, where you didn't just have kind of the OGs, the original psychedelic scientists who are amazing and have uh, this incredible history and knowledge, but now you have people coming in from the outside, right? From Harvard and Yale and, and Stanford that are jumping into psychedelics. And to me, that represented a real shift. And Tim and I, were, we were talking about, we're like, if this kind of talent is coming in right now to this field, we weren't seeing the same on the business side, right? And, and that's where we kind of got excited about maybe there's an opportunity to support these medicines and these therapies um, also in the for-profit space in an ethical way that, that doesn't have to be um, any one thing. We can do it our own way. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so, I don't know, it was MDMA therapy, one, one session, um, stumbling upon a conference and meeting amazing people. And, and uh, I don't I just Tim and I, I think we talked, I don't know, maybe twice a week at least about what we could do in the space. And it just evolved from there over the years. And when COVID hit, it was, it was just really obvious that the time is now. Was this 2019, by the way? Yeah, I was there too. Uh, I was there too. Oh, good. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that conference uh, 2000- had something like first-hand results from. I remember that. Yeah, it was very great. But Horizons I mean, is good about that. They they stay yeah. very serious. You know, Tim and I. Yeah. You see a lot of you do too. There's a lot of psychedelic kind of get rich quick kind of conferences happening left and right. Horizons. Uh, there's a couple of them, but Horizons has stayed very focused on the content. And I mean, it's just a very high integrity, you know, science kind of driven. There's some advocacy and other aspects to it. But I think the science is first and foremost, something that gets us excited every day. Mm -hmm. Okay. And is your idea of, let's say, because of course, one of the words that's going around the moment there's money in the game, it's like, oh, it's like pharma. It's going to be like the pharma industry. But I mean, then one is wondering if the so-called pharma industry, do you think there's still like the same structure that would be just repeated in the next 20 years or do we actually have to think about already like a completely different kind of system, how the so-called psychedelic pharma, let's say, will work in 10 to 15 years? Because I cannot imagine that's going to be exactly the same like um, now that you have like a classic pharma company. Yeah. The biggest dilemma that, that people talk about is historically in pharma, you've wanted repeat business, right? And so there's yeah. not incentive for patients to get better. There's incentives for right. patients to keep using your drugs, which can create a great business model, but that's not great for humanity. There's value outside of that that doesn't get captured. So that's, of course, the, the classic pharma dilemma. I think a trend we're seeing, which um, gives us a lot of hope, and this has been a trend for quite some time on the payer side is there's much more of a focus now on value-based care rather than fee-for-service. For the past few decades, it's always been fee-for-service. Doctors, um, you know, pharma companies, everyone gets paid when patients use their service rather than getting paid for seeing patients in long-term remission or seeing patients get better. And that's what insurers want to see because that's where you really get the cost savings is if you can account for that and quantify the savings from actually nipping an issue in the bud or getting to root causes, that helps out tremendously. So. I think psychedelics are percolating at a perfect time as that trend is taking hold and the growth in data and our ability to capture data um, is also very enhanced these days compared to what it was decades ago. So um, all those trends are are intersecting here. And I think we are going to see a very new um, pharma model overall of the future, whether it's in psychedelics, whether you look at digital therapeutics, which is another very nascent field. Um, in a lot of ways, how we think about people, how people get paid, how we think about patients getting better um, will improve over the years. And I'd say our view on pharma is you have pharma horror stories, you have the Sackler family, you also have plenty of blockbuster drugs and big successes in pharma too. I, I do, being in healthcare, I tend to view pharma more as kind of amoral than immoral, just as most issues, it's what they say about money, you know, money in the right people's hands, they can do a lot of good with it, money in the wrong people's hands, they can do tremendous bad with it. I think the same goes for pharma and it's easy to cherry pick the really bad stories, but you think about the advancements we've made for orphan indications. I mean, you know, for orphan diseases, highly rare diseases in pharma, a purely naturalistic approach would be unable to address. Gene editing, I mean, big breakthroughs like that. Innovation in pharma has done a tremendous amount of good. And I think the same thing can happen for psychedelics. We, as I mentioned earlier, there's 
a lot of great properties about psychedelics. There's plenty of factors that are lacking. And the only way we're going to solve for that is through novel drug discovery to either shorten duration of trips, to manage anxiogenic trips. Um, all of those factors we'll be able to accomplish through a biotech model as well. So we have a lot of optimism. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, I, like we said about, you know, pharma is a, we got to take back the word, maybe, maybe we got to like take yeah, it back. And, yeah. and that it's a dirty word. word. It's, yeah. it's a dirty yeah. word. It's, it's, yeah. You know, pharma, I just thought of this. Um, pharma reminds me of talking about the internet. It's like, yeah. you know, one, one day you talk about the internet and yeah. it is, it is the internet is um, sucking our brains and we're on our phones all the time. And we, you know, it's like radicalizing kids online. And then it also like unites us all. And we're right. It's all things good and all things bad. Pharma is the same thing, right? It's like you said, Tim, it's, it's amoral, right? Pharma, if we can fit within the pharma model as it exists today and be unapologetic about creating or, you know, or approving drugs that are already created or creating new drugs that are simply replacing what is being prescribed today, how is that not a positive thing for the world, right? We do have a a structure where there's this FDA and there's the DSM model and there's doctors prescribing and there's people going, right, we're not going to be sitting in a community. We're not all going to be working with, you know, in a community uh, with a guide uh, right now to work with highly psychoactive substances with our cousins that have no interest in psychoactive substances. But we are in a certain structure right now. We believe in a little bit of the evolution and revolution maybe, right? So, so it would be great if one day the model's blown up and we have a better way of treating and addressing mental health issues overall. That is a great long-term goal. I think maybe we're centrist on it in a way. If we were politicians, we believe that if we can at least today replace or largely improve upon the current available treatments. I don't see how that's not a net positive. There are too many people I'm getting getting heated about it because I, we all know people today that are being prescribed drugs that are, are, are have terrible side effects and may not be a good fit for them. And there are treatments out there that are better. If one day the whole system's blown up and we can work in a, in a way that, that we don't have to work exactly with the DSM uh, manual and insurance is, is reimbursing everything, whatever we can do to improve it, fantastic. But today we live in this world and I think we can have better drugs that are safer and with less side effects to treat depression, anxiety, and, and other widespread you know, issues today. That's where we stand. One last thing I'll, I'll toss into. Yeah. I do think pharma gives us a great Trojan horse to get these to market and get a lot of people sure. access in a much easier and above board legally way than even the legalization movement can. I mean, if you look at when cannabis was medicalized in California, relative to when it was legalized, that was a 20 to 25 year journey. So even going through seven to eight years of clinical trials, that's a shorter amount of time um, than we saw, you know, legalization take hold for medicalization in cannabis. So we know this, if you take a drug to market, even if it's scheduled by the DEA, if you find that it's efficacious and you get FDA approval, by default, the DEA has to reschedule it. It's going to carry some black box warnings. You're going to have what's known as a REM strategy, which is an acronym for risk evaluation and mitigation around it to protect patients. So there'll be some guardrails up, but um, it can legally be prescribed. You know, businesses can work through normal banking channels. Everything we do and everything we invest in currently is completely legally above board. So I do think the pharma model also serendipitously provides a great Trojan horse to actually get these to market more quickly. And then to Daniel's point, the patient access equation is a big part for us too. Not a lot of people can fly down to Mazatlan and do a peyote ceremony every quarter, you know, that's out of range for most Americans versus if these have hope of getting reimbursed, the degree of access can be much more expanded. 
Yeah, that's going to be a very interesting topic where you have to go to to do so and so. I mean, that's why the Netherlands are such an incredible country at the moment in Europe. But um, so what is the compound you guys are totally obsessed with? And can't stop mm-hmm. thinking about oh, <laughs> is it changing all answers. the time <laughs> or <laughs> is it just it. like last week i thought so much about mdma because i feel like it seems there's always a new perspective or a new study coming out on dmt and i'm, I'm kind of super scared to do a 5-meo dmt mm. but now it seems like i have to do it because <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite compound Part of the problem, man, of being in the space, once you're in the space, you feel like you got to, you know, be educated on, you know, you got to explore a little bit more so you can speak about it from firsthand. Uh That's a a high class problem. Well, I think it changes. I think it, I think it evolves. I I don't think there's any one medicine. I think that the medicines have different, uh, different kind of applications at different times. I I think your body and your mind um, work with these medicines differently, depending on where you're at in life. Um, mm-hmm. where you're at, there is some science, some, certainly some science behind that as well and psychology. And it really depends. I kind of gone between, I would say more gentle medicines like MDMA or, or ketamine that for, at least for, you know, myself can be a bit of a, a bit of a reset or, or kind of cooling down my you know nervous system. Then there's those that I personally describe as the more um, more psychedelic, more exploratory, more like kind of almost like um, not problem solving, but, you know, more exploring, you know, um, you know, mushrooms or LSD. But I, I think it really depends on where where I'm at uh, personally, where I'm at with, you know, ever since we launched Palo Santo, there's been, you know, Tim and I and, and our partners have been in, in heavy duty um, startup mode. So there hasn't been, you know, we haven't had the same time to, we did a lot of personal work before we started, out, which is good. We'll need it. We'll need it afterwards too. Uh, but it, it really depends uh, on kind of where, where I'm at in life. I think that these medicines will be used sort of cross indication in a way. I, I think that right now we have MDMA being approved for PTSD, but I do believe that MDMA will also be used for many other things. Right. And that's what we're finding in our personal lives where talking to people working with these medicines is they're finding different ways to use them creatively, you know, in a safe way. I'm, I'm very, very particular. I'm very careful. I work only with a guide um, sure. and, and kind of space it out in a way that makes sense for my life. Um, and I think having those guardrails up is, is very helpful for me. It creates the set and setting so that when I go into it, I have a, I kind of have an intention. I know what I'm getting into, uh, and, and have a goal. And then I sort of, you know, work on, with integration, of course, and then decide whatever the medicine may be, you know, the next quarter or half year or whatever we're doing, what may be appropriate at that time. It, it just shifts around based on, uh, experience. Daniel doesn't want to pick a favorite child. This is like, I love, the, I love them all. You know, it's, it's like, like I don't love them all. Yeah. I'm not going to mention which ones I don't love. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there are, there are some that, that we don't. But um, okay. I, I will say this. I do firmly yeah. believe depending on different compounds are going to have different value for different indications. Yeah. So I do firmly, I don't think psilocybin is going to be a panacea for every disease out there. I think if you have opioid use disorder, Ibogaine is going to be more effective than ayahuasca, for example. 5-MeO-DMT seems to also be effective for um, potentially amphetamine addiction or stimulant addiction. We don't pharmacologically know why, but anecdotally it does. So for all of these, it's going to be different. It'll depend on the nature of that disease. And we don't stratify depression very well. So we're investors in a company called Reset Pharma, which is focused on end-of-life care and patients who have depression related to a cancer diagnosis. And that is a very different form of depression from a teen who has depression or someone in their 20s who goes through a traumatic breakup. So the compound is going to be different. 
personally, though, since you asked it, uh, five MEO, yeah. without a doubt. I think there's something magical about that compound. But again, back to the skeptic point, I've learned about the, the power of that one and the level of caution you need to carry around that. Mm-hmm. So uh, one statistic I've heard, I do need to vet this. Um, so I'll, I'll caveat this before I put it out there, but I've heard something like 20% of people who do 5-MeO develop some sort of PTSD. Now, a lot of people are doing it in the underground. They're doing it in an uncontrolled fashion. Um, I don't know if you remember the article that came out two years ago or so that said like the latest party drug, 5-MeO DMC. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I don't know who would do, (laughs) who would smoke the toad at a rate. Like if you're doing that, that, that's on you, you know, not the the drug. But I think there's something special to that. But I do think, I don't know if a vaporized form is going to be the end-all be-all. I mean, Beckley SciTech mm-hmm. is working on a, a mm-hmm. mucosal form of delivery, yeah. probably intranasal. And that is another critical thing. If you talk about generations of psychedelics, Gen 1 is like the true generics, how we take them. Gen 2 is changing the delivery format of known compounds that modifies the pharmacokinetics, which is actually can be very important in therapeutic outcomes. And then Gen 3 is, is new chemical entities. That's novel drug discovery. But um, I think the way you deliver 5-MeO, if we tweak that, um, you could mitigate some of the downsides. I mean, getting shot out of a cannon, I don't think is going to be the answer here. So, I mean, but the compound pharmacologically could be really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But we're still trying to understand that there's a lot, and I think people don't realize this, there is a tremendous amount we still don't know at the yeah. pharmacological level yeah. of how these work, the downstream effects, what is the polypharmacology of receptors these are hitting, and could it almost be like a chord rather than a, a, you know, a single note of like you strike a certain chord and you get a ther- some sort of therapeutic effect from different drugs. We're figuring all, all yeah. that out, but at the anecdotal level, um, I personally think 5-MEOs, there's mm. a magic to that one. Okay. And just coming quickly back to the novel drug topic, because that's also something very fascinating to me that one could think of that, let's say um, there will be way more specific compounds researched into certain conditions that are more kind of almost like customized as a, let's say anorexia that you designer just, drugs. Dis- well, I mean, <laughs> if you want to, that was the name way. before they called these psychedelics in the research community. If you talk to people who did research on these in the nineties, yeah. they would call them designer drugs. That yeah, was okay, the polite good. term. Yes. Okay. I guess that's why Sasha Shulgin is getting rediscovered, I guess. Right. Yeah, because I absolutely. Shulgin, because he tweaked MDMA and has like 30 or 40 variations of it. So, and then also, I mean, this is, for example, we had Hamilton Morris on a podcast and he's like, that's the reason why he joined Compass Pathway because he wanted to just get crazy on variations of psilocybin, I guess. So, um, but how do you think this is going to look like? I mean, I know it's hard to say, but I mean, do you think this is a very thriving force in the space right now that people try to match diseases with new research? Well, yes. Uh, first of all, you, to get a drug approved, you know, you are getting it approved for an indication. You know, the incentives are actually somewhat aligned because you do have this, you know, goal to say, okay, we are treating this. We need to show clinical trial, you know, show results. That's mm-hmm. a good thing. There's some unintended consequences there where I, I would say Tim and I would both agree that it would be nice if you could have some of these drugs approved for the betterment of well people and for personal growth. I mean, that would be wonderful. We're not quite there yet. This is what I would say. We seem to have, there's something within the psychedelic kind of ethos that where we're excited about innovation at a certain level, working at a certain kind of place in this field. And then there's this 
innovation being kind of a dirty word, you know, somehow we're not respecting the original psychedelics or some of the more natural psychedelics that have been historically used. I think we can have both. I really don't think that innovation is a dirty word here. There are compounds being worked on. I'll give you an example. Tactogen is one of our portfolio companies, amazing team. Matthew and Luke. And essentially, they're working on, I guess we would describe as a a safer, gentler form of MDMA. I wouldn't say form of MDMA, inspired by MDMA, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt MDMA, again, I mentioned it's one that was incredibly healing for me. It has its drawbacks. Uh, You know, there is some neurotoxicity at the wrong levels. If you're using it too often, there's a come down or there's not a come down, depending on who you talk to, but there's certainly the potential for that. It would be great if some of these new second, third generation psychedelics could really address either certain indications that are being ignored or that could be addressed or can be improved so that they can be used in different ways. Um, Maybe more often, maybe by someone who's scared of the psychoactivity. I don't think we're going to be using, I mean, LSD was, when was LSD discovered? About 50 years ago or something, 60 years ago, something, whatever. You know, it wasn't a thousand years ago. This is a new drug. LSD is a new drug. And we treat LSD sometimes, I think we talk about it in the literature, as if, as if it's been around for 2,000 years. Yeah, middle it, it was It was invented by, you know, Albert Hoffman. And, and you know, so I think we're going to see uh, with the amount of talent coming into psychedelics right now, and you've, you know, Hamilton Morris and many others, uh, I think we're going to see that innovation um, leads to some pretty exciting and admittedly some pretty scary. There may be some ethical issues when certain paths, but it's going to be a lot more good than bad in the end. Yeah. Yeah, uh, a couple of things. I think back to an earlier comment. It first is realizing the context in which the natural psychedelics came from, that these were designed for some evolutionary purpose. I mean, if you read Michael Pollan's Botany of Desire, whenever plants make some form of a natural pesticide, humans love it. So whether it's caffeine, whether it's nicotine, yeah, we know okay. we know caffeine makes bees more hyper and um, for psychedelics, if you could, we know there's you know neurotoxic, plenty of neurotoxic plants out there that will render a predator delirious in some form. So that can be effective, um, or they can kill a predator too. So you actually can't do psychedelic research on rabbits because 2A agonists, so the 5-HT2A receptor, which we know is the source of the psychedelic effect, the hallucinogenic effect here, those are actually toxic for rabbits. Mm -hmm. In mice, the PK is very different. Mice metabolize these much more rapidly, and the receptors, they hit the affinity for different receptors in mice is very different for humans. So Whoever a natural predator may have been for the plants or fungi that produce these um, could have a very different PK profile where these would be a very good defense mechanism. So I think that's the first piece to realize because there's definitely a bit of a clash between, you know, kind of the underground or, or the naturalist community and some of the more scientific community. And some people are saying Mother Nature has given us everything we need. And we're saying not so fast. You know, let's realize the context, the set setting in which those were developed. Now, building off of that, some, to Daniel's points, just have less desirable properties. You know, they're not perfect. There may be a come down. You could get a lot of anxiety. People do have troubling trips. Some actually are toxic. Like Ibogaine, you have HERG inhibition, which is a really big risk with Ibogaine. I was something like one in 50 patients I had heard going through Demorex's Caribbean facilities had a cardiac event where they needed a defibrillator there. I mean, that's It's a real risk. You cannot take a drug to market with that kind of a risk profile um, at that rate. So I began, you need to eliminate HERC inhibition. For a lot of the 2A agonists, they also have high affinity for the 5-HT2B receptor, which has a lot of expression on the heart. And we know you could develop valveopathies from chronic use of these, at least for correlating that to a drug known as fenfluramine, which has been on the market for some time, colloquially known as fenfen. 
Um, so there are some risks that we don't know from like active microdosing, especially with LSD, you could get cardiac events, you know, further down the line. And then you've developed cross tolerance as well. You develop tolerance very, very quickly to all of the classic 2A agonists. And that's cross tolerance. So if you're doing, you know, a, a lot of LSD and then try to go do peyote, you're still going to have a tolerance to peyote or, or mescaline. Oh yeah. Interesting. So, okay. Yes. You have cross tolerance. So there are a lot of areas that we see where you could have improvement. And then the last thing this is the classic issue of small molecule drug discovery because we call this psychedelics, but really all it is is it's a subset of small molecule drug discovery. And the issue with small molecule drug discoveries is the compounds you create are like very loose keys. And the receptors in your brain and throughout your body are like locks. And so when you have, you know, when you have a really loose key, it can get into a lot of locks is the best way to think about it. Or maybe mm. better way to put the locks are loose. Let's put it that way. And so certain drugs can activate the receptors you want to, but they also hit a lot of receptors you don't want to. And that's where we get off-target effects. That's where you get a lot of the side effect profile of the compounds that are undesirable. So there's a huge push across biotech for more targeted small molecule drugs. And I think the same thing could be for psychedelics. If we know the likely therapeutic effect rests at the 2A receptor, for example, then why not make a more targeted drug for just 2A receptors and try to mitigate 2B activation, for example, so you have no mm -hmm. risk of alveopathies there. So Bright Minds is working on very targeted compounds. Um, Ocean is another company we're invested in. So there's a number out there that are also working on that. What we have, the toolkit we have is nice, but there is a lot of improvement. And then I didn't even hit on duration. There's no evidence really that a four-hour trip makes a big difference versus a six-hour trip. The evidence seems to suggest more achieving that mystical experience and achieving a certain threshold blood plasma level of these compounds, that correlates with mystical experience, which correlates with therapeutic outcome. So that's another component. I mean, psilocybin is a pro-drug. You could have other pro-drugs of psilocin that cleave off in a different way and impact the pharmacokinetics there. So um, long laundry list there, but I think there's plenty of room for improvement in the, the field of psychedelic drug discovery is going to be a rich field for yeah. years or decades to go. Well, and, yeah. and, and one of the most exciting things is, you know, Tim and I are, are very lucky to be surrounded by, I think that, you know, what we believe is the strongest scientific advisory board, right, in this space. We have, among others, an incredible uh, pharmacologist, um, Charles Nichols, who's bothers uh, David Nichols, you know, the, the going way back in, in psychedelics, you're trying kind of direct lineage here to, um, you know, Sasha Shulgin and and all that. But what's fascinating to us is, is not always what they know, and they know a lot, our scientific advisors, they're amazing. And the depth of expertise, we don't miss a lot, right? We, we sometimes have to go outside and ask some other people, and they, they know what they know and they don't know. But it's really what we don't know about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. It's what we've seen come out in the last year, two, three, five, all the amazing results uh, and discoveries. They're unbelievably exciting. But when Tim and I are on these calls um, discussing uh, these compounds and, 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 these, and these businesses and, and what the development, we're constantly fascinated by what we don't know, right? No one's sitting there on those calls and say, oh, this is exactly how it works yeah. and this and that, and that's why whatever. <laughs> it's like every time we go off the call, we're like, the very little we know tells us that there's reason to be unbelievably excited about these compounds as it relates to not only mental health treatments, right? But we're looking into physical pain. You've got Ketamine for pain management, of course. Um, Bexin Biomedical is working on a device for that. There's, there's a lot of reasons to get excited. One of the reasons we get most excited is we still don't know a lot, right? It's incredible to us when we ask 
uh, we like to think our, our advisors are not only knowledgeable, but they have their egos are in check. And we'll say, what about this? And they'll go, you know what? We don't know. We don't understand how that works. Well, that might not break the blood brain barrier. It hasn't been tested. That's interesting. Like, you know, we have to wait for that. So it's fascinating to see how far we've come in a short amount of time with very little knowledge, right? In certain ways. And then there's so much more to go. I mean, every day there's just work. Yeah. There's more questions than answers, yeah. but there's also more excitement around this being a very practical applications tomorrow, right? MDMA for PTSD, psilocybin for depression, right? Those are on the horizon. There's a lot of indications that we may be addressing, yeah. um, you know, in five or six years. What's your take on investing in, let's say, retreats or just, hmm. or maybe in general, your thoughts on retreats that are obviously kind of also growing and not necessarily only like illegal retreats, but also like in a legal context where people hmm. often obviously come sometimes not even for like severe mental health problems, but I feel like there's more and more a group of people or customer, everyone to call it, that has underlying things already for a long time, but they never went to psychiatry or they never went to actually took an antidepressant. But maybe mm. after COVID, they felt like, okay, there are things that I have to look into. So a lot of these people can actually undergo a safe psilocybin experience in the Netherlands and starting to look into things, let's say. So what is your take on, again, as an investor or as just as your thought on these upcoming retreats and what is important for you that they actually deliver? Yeah, I, I think there's, and there's also separating to your point, kind of the investor yeah. cap versus uh, yeah, the, you personal. Know, the, the personal yeah. side of this. Yeah. I mean, on the personal side, um, I think they're a boon in legal jurisdiction. I mean, the supply demand imbalance here is so off currently. If there is far more demand for these services than supply and going through a biotech model, it's going to take years. A lot of people yeah. can enroll in trials. It's going to take a long time for these to get to market. So they certainly retreat solve for that supply demand dynamic um, without a doubt. So I think they're a boon. It's, it's a great way for people to access these at least a limited number. It is expensive to get to these. You usually have to travel. They usually yeah. are expensive retreats as well, which um, that's the bummer. Now they can sometimes open up group therapies, which can bring down the cost mm -hmm. in some ways. So um, I'm kind of laying out the pros and cons of it. I'd say the other thing I, I want to see with retreats is some sort of medical staff on hand or some sort of medical evaluation. People should be screened prior to going into these. There aren't any standards or hard rules around that. So you're kind of trusting people will do mm -hmm. that. But if we do retreats, we always want to do that. From the business side, um, peer clinics can be a tough business sometimes. I mean, you know, I've seen the brick and mortar model from healthcare. We've looked at dermatology clinics, veterinary yeah. clinics, all that type of stuff in, in private equity. Um, so clinics can be a tough play. Um, and so from a VC perspective, it, there isn't always the VC upside of you're going to get like a Facebook 100x plus type investment return. Mm -hmm. It usually lends itself more to kind of a private equity model, more cash flow generative. Um, but a lot of the clinics we see and what we like are ones that build out some sort of a tech component, have a differentiator around that, um, or a community aspect also, which can intersect with tech in a lot of ways. If you create a community from people who go there, mm -hmm. something that scales a bit mm -hmm. more easily than just brick and mortar where you have to open up each unit and you're dealing yeah. with yeah, of real estate, all those headaches. Um, and so one group we really like, and we are investors in, is, is a group called Holos. They wow. have shovels in the ground in Costa Rica on their first site. Um, they have another one scoped out. And we really love what they're doing. And it is a mix of those two things. That they've yeah. got great team. Ian Michael over there is a rock star and has been studying this and how to offer these for years and is really an expert on 
um, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, and then they've got a community aspect they're building out. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, I know I was going to say I agree. If, if you can solve the medical, I mean, I, you know, and, and one thing I just want to say is this is the CYA. Don't try this at home. When I talk, when we talk about our own experiences, safety is an issue, right? We're all adults, and we're this is not something we take lightly. We have to solve. The more this field comes above ground, whether it relates to drug development, so we have legal safe drugs and not. Uh, crap that people are whatever buying at music festivals or whether it's retreat centers coming above ground right so that they're you have a medical director uh, mm-hmm. at a holos in costa rica as opposed to a potentially dangerous neo shaman who's trained for a week and doesn't know anything mm-hmm. about blood pressure mm-hmm. it, it, the more we take the drugs and the therapies which includes retreat centers above ground the safer everyone is going to be right so i think yeah. the, the way tim and i look at it is retreat centers clinics they're part of the ecosystem that is going to help pollinate, right? The more people that go and have a safe experience Mm -hmm. uh, that is hopefully therapeutic, but most importantly safe, and then secondly therapeutic, the more this ecosystem is going to grow in the right way, right? I think Mm -hmm. legalization, medicalization, they're all coming together to support each other. And we need more people that have access and exposure to safe and therapeutic experiences that will help spread the word that this is not such a far out there thing, but we do need to bring it above ground in a really, really safe and legal way because things are moving very quickly. So there's, there's a risk that you have retreat centers that look like they're safe, but you don't have a medical director. And I think that's a really good point that Tim made. The structures do need to be in place. They are very powerful medicines, no doubt. When you have your first five MEO experience, we want to come back on a, a podcast. We want, we want, we want to hear and we want to report. And same thing I tell all my friends and family who try something out. I'm like, you don't have to talk. We don't have to. You don't have to tell me it's personal. But if you do, if you want to share. I'm here. I mean, uh, we'd love to hear about that experience. When I mean, you, Joe Rogan when you, says you always see like metal angels or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know I, what that is. Don't even get started. <laughs> I, you know what? I love Joe Rogan sometimes, not other times. All I would I know, say is um, everyone has their biases. He seems to have uh, take five amio a little lightly. Tim and I would both caution that uh, do your homework, work with uh, yeah, someone very yeah, safe. Sure. Um, hopefully it'll be legal by the time you're trying, you know, most people yeah. are trying it, but it's very important to treat it with a lot of respect. I think he's a little bit, uh, I don't know. Well, yeah. It's good that he's spreading the word, but uh, I would I would caution on um, on who you work with and how often you work with it and where you're at in your life. Uh, <laughs> okay, got it. Well, I think that's already a lot we addressed, and it was a nice, fast-paced conversation, which is also nice to have in a podcast. So, thanks for being on the show. I th- um, it looks like there will be many podcast episodes with you. It seems like there are millions of more questions coming, and with my five meo thing that we have to discuss there you go that's the follow we just, the preview. We just next yeah. follow this is like season one they drop season, season drop one the first season be really amazing i think it would be cool super fascinating Figure thank out, you so um, much guys yeah yeah i enjoyed you have to jump we'll be in uh, touch and let us know how we can help with your baby with no rush we'll absolutely i will happy to help you thank you see you soon thanks thank so much. Yeah. okay bye. Bye. bye thank you We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club Show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on the newhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon.